0: Ministry that we have. I believe it's for preschool and on down. Let's go ahead and take advantage of that at this time. We're going to be in the book of Galatians, chapter 5. I am finishing up this section in chapter 5 that Pastor Sean uh, began, began, and I get to finish the, the particular section of thought that Paul had here. But before we get to our passage this morning, what I wanted to ask you is how many of you guys are gardener experts? Like, you can grow anything. You have a green thumb. Well, if so, I may need to hire you the next time I decide to plant a garden because I have had at least two misadventures when it comes towards garden planting. The first time, I was still living in Charmony, Julie and I wanted to grow some plants, some vegetables, and there was one, I think it was one July day that was pretty hot, we, uh, we went from having a pretty nice start to nothing because of grasshoppers. Those grasshoppers came in and ate everything, and so we didn't have anything left because those grasshoppers thought that those you know, pea shoots tasted mighty fine. Um, the, next time, the next time I tried to grow a garden, I had a bunch of planters involved, and two things I did wrong there. One is I left it available to the dogs, and, this, and the other thing that I did is that I didn't put things far enough apart, so I had things grow like a, maybe like eight inches, and then they all died. And the stuff that didn't die, the dogs dug up. So I have not a good gardener, but I do know that if you're going to have a good crop, if you're going to have good fruit, it takes a lot of work. You have to sow it right. you got to water it. you got to fertilize it. And as I learned, pesticides are also important as well. Uh, We can't, but we all know that we can't make it grow on our own. Like, I can't stand in front of my gardening box and go, grow peas, grow peas, grow peas. It just doesn't work. It's something that the pea does, right? So we can provide the best environment for the pea or carrot or whatever vegetable we're trying to grow to grow, but we can't, aren't able to force it on our own. Well, Paul's going to use a similar metaphor here in Galatians where he's going to talk about fruit And it's a different variety of fruit. It's not something we can produce on our own, but something that must come as a result of the Holy Spirit who gives it weight and who allows it to grow in us. So we're going to read the complete section starting in verse 16, and we're going to focus on verses 22 through 26. So Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. All right, so we just, this is the complete section of Galatians 5, a a unit of thought, because Paul's been contrasting the flesh and the Spirit, and the two ways of living. You're either living according to the flesh, or you're living according to the Spirit. And they are in conflict with one another in the Christian and we are to be those who are marked by lives in the Spirit. But I want to draw a, your attention, because we're focusing on verses 22 through 26, the, the contrast that Paul is drawing with, but the fruit. So why fruit, not works? So Paul has just spent the previous verses talking, talking about the works of the flesh, Now all of a sudden he's talking about fruit. Because you would think that Paul might talk about the works of the Spirit, but instead he talks about the, the fruit. Well, a couple of notes to make about that word. The word "fruit" is singular, so it's kind of a collective. It's an interconnected uh, sort of idea that Paul has with the fruit. Like you're not going to have, for example, somebody who's uh, who's loving and doesn't have patience. Those things go together; they're interconnected. You can think of, if you want to picture a fruit in your mind, something like an orange, right? Like an orange is made up of individual components, and if you take part of that part of the section of the orange out, you don't have a complete orange. In a similar way, we need all of those various qualities that he talks about. But something else is about the word works that Paul's been using throughout the book of Galatians. When he's talking about works, what he means is what you do on your own, in your own effort. So when you're working, this is something that you're doing on your own power. And he is taking pains repeatedly to tell us that works cannot save and works come according to the flesh. For example, earlier he said in Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. And earlier, as we just read as well, the works of the flesh are evident. And it's revealing the nasty ugliness of sin. And he gives us that laundry list of specific sins. And then he goes, just kind of a catch-all, and things like these. So, is an example list that he gives. So the point is the point for, apart from the Spirit, we are not able to save ourselves, but we're not also to grow ourselves as well without the work of the Spirit within us. So we need both the spirit's saving grace and his sustaining grace. See, sometimes we get the impression that once we're saved, it's up to us to live the Christian life. Like it's like God, God got us saved, and once we're saved, Now we need to exert effort to become better people. But the point that Paul's making is clear, is that this fruit comes as a result of the Spirit. See, when I was a child, I saw the fruit of the Spirit as imperatives, as a list of like, I need to do this to be a Spirit-filled Christian. So for example, I would read uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I would read that and say, okay, I need to be more loving, more peaceful more patient more kind more good more faithful i need to be better at these things so rather than seeing this as a result of the spirit's work in me i saw it as something that i had to do on my own in my own effort so there's two problems that that i think with that view of approaching the fruit of the spirit that way number one if you approach the the fruit of the spirit that way it becomes a work and it's no longer fruit so the fruit becomes a work Because it's something I'm doing on my own, on my own effort. And it's no longer the Spirit's fruit, and it becomes mine. I worked and I earned that fruit of the Spirit. It's my labor. And Paul's point throughout Galatians is that you can't do it on your own. It has to come because the Spirit's work. The second problem that you have with approaching the, the fruit of the Spirit as a list of imperatives, things that we need to do, is that my work doesn't really ever get me there. No, how no matter how much I may sit, in you know, in let's say my where my love seat or couch at at home, and just close my eyes and will to myself, "Ah, be more loving, be more loving. It just doesn't come, uh, right? Uh, As much as I might want that to be the case, it doesn't really work that way. I won't become patient overnight. So the the point is, no matter how much I may desire or want a specific quality, I can't do that on my own, especially. Uh, If it's against my nature. So the fruit is supernatural in our origin. It's not natural in its origin. It's something he has to do in our own lives. We have a role to play, which we're going to get to. But we need to emphasize, first of all, that it's the supernatural work of the spirit within us. So there's an already and not yet when we're talking about the fruit. If the Holy Spirit is in you, you already have the fruit in a small way. Peter, in kind of a similar fashion, talks about this in 2 Peter 1, uh, verses 5 through 8. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, ...and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you look at verse 8 there in Peter's letter... ...he he knows that these character traits are yours and increasing. So let me give you an example that might bring this home to you. So if you guys are basketball fans at all... um, ...you might learn from an early age how to dribble and shoot the basketball. However, somebody who's in sixth grade... ...who's just learning how to dribble and shoot the basketball... ...doesn't do it on the same level as Steph Curry and LeBron James... Right? Those guys are experts, professionals, when it comes to, at dribbling and shooting the basketball. In a similar way, we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit and these qualities. We are growing in our capacity to practice them. So baby Christians have these, and so do mature Christians. It's just a, a matter of quality and a depth of these particular traits. Uh, so if, one is, if anyone's in Christ, we are Spirit-filled and being spirit filled means that we begin to produce those qualities that fruit now again the baby christian is just going to have these qualities in a small degree but a mature lifelong christian should be having these qualities to a greater degree so the fruit of the spirit gives these gifts to us in the new birth and he continues to build and improve upon them so are you earnestly praying for the holy spirit spirit to produce that fruit within you are you able to see those in miniature So, that's part one. It's fruit, not works. So, what exactly is the fruit? So, that's what Paul says, fruit of the Spirit, and he gives us nine qualities. So, what is the nature of the fruit that we're talking about here? Well, there's nine qualities. A lot of scholars think that there are three triads. Like, Paul's trying to make some play on the Trinity. So, there's three triads of three, making nine. But regardless, much like his earlier list that he had when he was talking about the works of the flesh being evident, it's an example list. It's not an exhaustive list. It's a representative list uh, for us. There are other character traits that we would think and hope that a Christian would have as well. But I do believe it it helps us get get an idea or a picture of the kind of person that a Christian should look like. When when taking a look, look at these two lists that Paul has, when you look at the list of the the works of the flesh, and then the list of the fruit of the Spirit, you, notice two dif- you should notice a difference between the two. One is the works of the flesh are primarily external. They're things that you can look out and see. Like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, th- that person's in sensuality, that person's committing idolatry, they're having sorcery. But the, the fruit of the Spirit is more internal. They're more dispositions and attitudinal rather than things that we can see necessarily on the outside. And so the fruit of the Spirit is demonstrated primarily in character and disposition rather than external works. I think that's one of the other reasons he talks about fruit. I think Paul approaches it this way because my motivation and my internal dispositions matter. For example, let's take generosity. There's two ways I could be generous. One is I could be generous, hoping that other people are going to see what I'm doing, being generous, giving money to somebody, and go, man. What an awesome, generous person Andrew is. Or I might, or instead, what we would hope is that I give because of my, my love for humanity or because I am compelled by the generosity of Christ or something like that. The, my motivation, my internal disposition matters a great deal. And, that, and that's the biblical pattern as well. Our inner attitudes, our dispositions, our character matters in the biblical pattern. We are transformed by the inside out. And these traits as well have a vertical and a horizontal dimension to them. So, for, let's take one, for example, peace. We're to have peace with God and peace with each other. So, there's both a, a vertical, our relationship with God, and a horizontal. So, as we go through these, I'm going to try to point out how this works out both vertically, us and God, and horizontally, us with each other. So, with all that being said, what exactly do all the, these words specifically mean? So, I struggle with this uh, in in a sense because we could preach a sermon on each one of these words. So, I'm I'm just going to give you the definitions in brief and a couple of examples. So, where does Paul begin? He begins with the quality of love. See, love is the cardinal Christian virtue. But what does love mean anymore, right? I love ice cream. I love pizza. I love my dogs. I love hunting. I love going on hikes. We use love so often anymore, what does it even mean? We often use, in our culture, it kind of means something like warm affection. It just makes me feel good on the inside. And so we forget sometimes of what the Bible teaches about love. And I think in the Christian sense, the best way to think of love is that I am devoted towards another person's good, even if it's at my own expense. So it might cost me to love this person and to seek their good. So when I love my wife, for example, is when I devote my energies for her, even when it costs me. Paul gives a more thorough explanation in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. And this is what he says about love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, gives us a description of what love is in the Christian sense. And love is at the root of all the other qualities that Paul describes. In a sense, Paul could have just said the fruit of the Spirit is love, period. But he goes on to explain a little bit more detail what that character looks like when we're talking about Christian love. So it's just kind of a summary of overarching trait that he gives so the next trait after love is joy so what is joy joy is different than happiness but joy is a deep-seated satisfaction in god and christ and his work and who he is so joy is a deep-seated satisfaction in god and god's work god's character so joy is not robbed on circumstances there that's what our happiness is dependent on we're happy when things are going well. We're unhappy when things aren't going well. Joy, it does not matter what my circumstances are, but rather because it's it's rooted in God. So in James 1-2, this is why he can write this. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now in the context that James is talking about, he's speaking of uh, tribulation and persecution. Like you guys are going undergoing trials of various kinds. Well, they were enduring persecution. So how can a Christian count trials, persecution, and trouble joy? Well, it's only in the knowledge of who God is and what he has done in us. So joy is something that can't be robbed by circumstances. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, and it's joy, and it's peace. Peace is the idea that there's no hostility there's no conflict between you, God, and others. And Paul tells us that because of Jesus in Romans 5:1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a peace that Jesus achieved through us for us on the cross. And so we can now seek reconciliation That's an idea that we have two parties that are apart that are being reconciled, being brought back together in Christ. So this is why Jesus would say, blessed are the peacemakers for theirs is the kingdom of God. So Paul says that since we have been reconciled to God in Christ, we too are to seek their reconciliation with God by telling them about that and drawing them to Christ. So for example, he would say in 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20, So, the fruit of the Spirit being peace means that evangelism is a natural overflow of being a person of peace. Because I am at peace with God in Christ, I want you to be at peace with God in Christ. And so, it's an, an invitation for people to be reconciled to God in Christ. And that's our vertical part of peace. The horizontal part of that is that we are to seek unity and harmony with others rather than division. Paul's been talking about divisions and rivalries and envy and all this other stuff earlier. Now he's talking about, okay, that's what the flesh looks like. In the Spirit, we're to be seeking peace, harmony, and unity. So are you a person who brings peace and harmony in a relationship, or do you bring division and conflict? The Holy Spirit is changing us to be more and more people of peace and to be a peacemaker. So the fruit of the Spirit, we have love, joy, joy, Peace, and then everybody's favorite, patience. It's another virtue which is extended by the Holy Spirit. I kind of like the old King James translation of this word as long-suffering, because I think that kind of gets at the idea here. This virtue, vertically, is related to God's timing. God often doesn't work on our timetable, right? We've been very impatient with God. God, why aren't you doing this? Why is it taking you so long? This seems to be taking forever. But a Christian is content to wait on God's perfect timing. We're content to wait upon the Lord. It, that's the vertical dimension of this. The horizontal dimension of patience is exercised toward each other. Uh, in the Hebrew, this word was actually meant short-nosed. Short-nosed was kind of the idea of being short-tempered. And long-nosed was the idea of having a, a long fuse. It's just think, They were thinking, I th- believe, of like horses, you know, a sh- My wife works with horses, and when a horse has a very short nose, you can hear a horse when it's very upset, and it would be like, (laughs) and that's the idea. Are you short-fused, or are you long-fused? A person of patience doesn't blow up at a perceived slight. This person's not going to be easily offended, and no one has to walk around eggshells around this person. It's a person of patience. The same patience that God extended towards us as sinners is the same patience we are to extend to others. So we the fruit of the spirit's love, joy, peace, patience and kindness. Kindness in the New Testament is usually used of God's benevolent attitude towards sinners. Kindness chooses to think and seeks the best for people. And, their motiva- ...and considers the best of their motivations. Kindness moves us to be compassionate towards others. In a parallel verse, Paul would say this in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, forgiving one another... ...as God in Christ forgave you. So kindness thinks much of the kindness we've received in Christ... ...and because of that we can extend, extend that same kindness towards others... God has been so kind to us in the gospel, in giving us of his own son. How can we not extend that same kindness towards others? How can we not have that compassion, that warm disposition towards others? So we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and then goodness. Goodness is thinking much about the generosity of God. God is a generous giver, and he has given liberally to us. Paul would write this in Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So God is the epitome of a generous goodness. We ought to be generous as well towards God and generous towards others. Are you tight-fisted with your things... Or are you open-handed with them? A Christian marked by goodness desires to give his time, his talents, and his treasures to God and to others. So what comes after goodness, according to Paul, is faithfulness. I think a better translation might be for us loyalty or dependability. Because sometimes faithfulness is very abstract. But it's a, clo- the, a Christian is going to be faithful in their obedience towards God. Daniel is a good example of this in, in the pagan times that he lived. Daniel, in the story of the lion's den, for example, no one could find fault in Daniel's character because he was faithful to God, faithful to his responsibilities uh, in the government and everything else, and they couldn't bring any charge to Daniel, so they came up with some arbitrary law that they, can, that they could find so that Daniel could be charged with the crime and thrown in the, the lion's den. But instead of cowering in fear... Daniel continued his faithfulness to God, throwing open the doors to pray. And throughout his life in that pagan land, Daniel sets that example of what it means to live a faithful life to God in the midst of pagan idolatry. Now, the horizontal implication of this is that we can be loyal and dependable with each other. Are we true to our commitments? Is our yes, yes, and our no, no? Do we disassociate with people based upon their performance? Do we just have a bunch of surface-level friends, or are we a, a loyal friend? Listen to Solomon, who would say this in Proverbs 26. Many a man proclaims his steadfast love, but a faithful man, who can find? So the Holy Spirit, then, is enabling us and gifting us to become a loyal, dependable, faithful friend to other Christians, and loyal, dependable, and obedient to God. So we're, we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Then we have gentleness. First of all, let's say what gentleness is not. Gentleness is not being a doormat. It's not being a pushover. So don't get the picture of a soft, cuddly grandma here. Instead, gentleness is the opposite of being harsh and biting. For example, Proverbs 15.1 says this, A soft answer turns away, aunt, turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. So what's your tone when you're speaking towards others? How do you speak to one another? Do you exude encouragement and warmth and love in your speech, or are you sarcastic and biting and maybe sardonic? So let me give you an example of of how you can tell what a a gentle person is like. It's through how they say things. So let's suppose somebody has a little mustard on their face, and you can, you, can say, you can draw their attention to this in one of two ways. The first thing you can say, go clean your face, you slob. Or you might want to go check yourself out in the mirror. So the tone and choice of words reveal that spirit of gentleness. And gentle person is also quick to submit and non-combative. Gentleness doesn't mean being a pushover, but rather trying to be a, a submissive towards those trying to help. And, and willing to follow their, their leaders. And the last trait that Paul mentions here is self-control. The, uh, Paul gives the vice list earlier, and in that list he talks about sexual sins. And self-control usually is used towards one's sexual desires. A Christian's able to, to bridle and know the proper place for sexuality. However, you can extend that same principle for all other bodily desires. Eating, sleeping, whatever that is, a self-controlled Christian is able to bridle those desires. I think of like a... You, think of, you could think of a self-control sort of like the bridle uh, in a horse or a steering wheel in a car. It gives direction towards all that power. And self-control is able to direct that power, that energy, in its right area. And so... Self-control then wires us to be in, in command of those desires. It's not necessarily those desires are wrong. It's the proper use of those desires. So the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So you, we can think of this as sort of a gut check. How is your life as measured by, your, as the, measured by these traits? Do you exude these? Which ones are the most visible? Which ones are not? which ones are are things that maybe you struggle to demonstrate. To know a Christian, then, is to know those visible fruits. A Christian, as we mentioned earlier, has these traits and is increasing in their use. Uh, To be a Christian is to live and grow in the Spirit's fruit. Jesus would say this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 17-20. So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So what is the fruit that you are producing? Is it the fruit of the Spirit? And if you are in the Spirit, if you are empowered by the Holy Spirit, you will produce these good fruits. Jesus and Paul here aren't thinking of perfection, but rather continuous growth and production in the fruit. If there is an unfruitful tree and a life not marked by these qualities, you need to wonder whether or not that person may be indeed in Christ. They might be claiming it, but if they don't have any of the fruits, it, tend, it would suggest that they are not in the Spirit. But Paul mentions that this, at, the end of, uh, at the end of verse 23 here, that against such things, fruit of the Spirit, there is no law. What in the world is he talking about there? Well, because as he mentioned earlier in chapter 5, if you go back to verse 14, he said this, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. A Christian who lives according to the fruit of the Spirit fulfills what the law commands. In a sense, they don't necessarily need the law because they're fulfilling what the law demands and commands because we are exceeding what the law commands. So the Holy Spirit is responsible for the fruit in us, what role do we have to play? That's great, Pastor Andrew. You have this list of fruits that we're supposed to have. How do we get there? Well, that's where we're going to get with point three here. It's our role in the fruit. There's two commands that Paul gives us here at the the end of this chapter. Look at verse 24 for the negative. Verse 24, Paul says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So Paul says, if you are a Christian, you are killing and are killing and have killed your flesh. The old Puritans used the word mortification. So if you want to impress somebody with a big word today, say, I need to mortify my flesh. I'm in the process of mortification. And all it means is that we are killing our sin. We're to publicly execute. He uses the word crucify here, making a spectacle of it. It is for us to be dead to sin. And sin to be an us dead to sin. Paul explains a little more detail what he means in Romans chapter 6. In verses 6 and 7 he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. And a little later in in verse 11 he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So think through this in in Galatians 5 for a second. Just before Paul gives us this description of the fruit of the Spirit, he has contrasted this with the works of the flesh. So we are to kill those works of the flesh. So what does it mean to kill, to crucify the flesh? Well, to crucify means that you give it a death blow. Elsewhere in scripture, Jesus would say, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Do away with it. Throw it away. If it's pornography, for example, that means to smash your computer. If drinking, no alcohol in the home. If lying, a fully known life and work. Go to the source and cut it off and kill it. Don't give sin an inch. So to crucify means to give it a death blow, but it also means to make it publicly known. James would say in James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Crucifixion was a public thing, and we must allow others to know and to help us kill our sin. Confess to one another. The third thing that crucifixion means, to crucify the flesh, is that it means a slow death. Crucifixion was a slow, slow, torturous death. Don't expect to be rid of sin overnight. It takes time, perseverance, and continual repentance to overcome some of those habitual sins. Some sins are so deeply rooted, it takes time to kill. And then that, that takes us back to that importance of ha, ha, having one another alone to help to confess our sins. But our sins must die. And Paul gives a very specific application, I believe, in verse 26 for the Galatians. So Paul has been kind of talking about things in generalities here. He's been talking about the works of the flesh, through the spirit. Now we need to crucify the flesh. And now in verse twenty-six he says, "Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another." I got Doug's mic. All right. I'm trying to remember where I was. All right, so Paul goes from talking about generalities to something specific here for the Galatians. So you can talk about fruit sins and root sins. If you look at the works of the flesh, they are very much the fruit sins. But here he's getting to the root. What is it specifically that the Galatians need to kill? Well, there's three specific sins that he names conceit or pride provoking one another so sort of some sort of division going on and envy and Paul's like these are the specific sins that you need to kill in your context now for us we might not be struggling with these specific sins however I believe the exhortation still applies to us but what is that specific sin in your life that you need to kill what sin must you crucify it may be pride it may be envy it may be something else going on in, in your life. But Paul would say, we need to crucify the flesh. We need to kill it. So we have the negative command, which is to crucify the flesh. But we also have a positive command here as well. He says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It's, it's important to remember in both, in both verse 24 and 25, the order. In verse 24, we're told we belong to Christ Jesus. And in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, we often have gospel indicatives, things that are true of us in Christ. And if that's is true of us in Christ, then we can now do something. And so, for example, verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, Paul's referencing our new birth that we have in Christ and so Paul earlier, would I think he's recalling something that he had said in Galatians 3.3. 3. He wrote this, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul's saying, look, if the Spirit is the one who's given you life, he's also the one who's going to continue and give you the power in your Christian faith or in your Christian walk. The Spirit finishes what He starts. He is the source of our eternal life, and He's also the power in our sanctification. So Paul would say in Philippians one six, "I am sure of this: He who began a good work of work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ." So in this unit of thought, Paul's given different nuances of the same idea. We're to? Verse 16, walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, be led by the Spirit. Verse 25, he circles back around and says, keep in step with the Spirit. So the idea is that we are to follow, to walk, and to be led by the Spirit. So let me remind you of something Pastor Sean said at the beginning of this uh, when he was talking about what it means and how to walk by the Spirit. How we to walk and be led by the Spirit is to employ his appointed means. And what are those means? Here's just a sample, Bible reading, fellowship, meditation and memorization of scripture, prayer, fasting, worship, gathering on the Lord's day, baptism in the Lord's supper. So those are the the Spirit's appointed means on what it means to be led and to walk by him. And as we employ those means, which is rooted and grounded in the word that he inspired we're being led by Him. We're keeping in step with Him. So the fruit comes as a result. We don't, get, we don't think to ourselves, man, I just want to start producing this fruit. It's something that the Spirit produces in us as we walk in our led by Him. So our role in the fruit of the Spirit is to crucify the flesh, kill our sin, and to walk by the Spirit. It's not about to go trying to achieve the fruit producer. Remember this fruit is of the spirit. It's something that the spirit produces and grows in us. So we we can sow the word, we can fertilize the word, we can prune wild shoots, we can weed out sin in our lives, but this the spirit is the one who gives growth to the fruit. He's our energy and our source. So where are you this morning? Have you employed the spirit's means? Are you growing in the fruit as a result? Maybe you're here this morning thinking like, you know, I can do this on my own effort, my own ability. This is something I can do. Well, you're not going to be able to do that apart from the Spirit's regenerating work. If you're not born again, there's no way that you're going to be able to produce that fruit. You might want it, and you might wish for it, but the only way you're going to do that is by repentance and trusting in Christ. And as a result, the Holy Spirit will begin to produce that fruit. And you could also perhaps approach these two lists that we have in this section as sort of a a litmus test to to discern whether or not you are a true Christian or not. Is your life marked more by the works of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit? And if it's marked more by the works of the flesh you may need to repent and trust Christ for the very first time. You might have thought yourself a Christian, but if I look at my life, I know I am marked by the works of the flesh more than by the works, the, by the fruit of the Spirit, and I don't think I've really trusted Christ. Maybe you need to repent and trust Christ this morning. But for those who are perhaps producing the fruit, I would, pray, I would want us to pray and go to the Holy Spirit and ask, us to ask him to enable us to live more and more in the fruit that he is producing within us. And that we would have these more and more and increase in our capacity to practice these fruits. So we're going to go to the, the Lord in prayer and uh, take a few moments of silence and just see where the Holy Spirit would, would lead you this morning. Holy Spirit, we do thank you that you are the source and the energy of this fruit, that we're not left on our own to produce this. But this is something that you do within us, sometimes unseen. I do pray that all of us here would employ the means that you have appointed, that we would grow in the fruit that you have given rise in our lives. And Lord, I do pray this morning that there's anybody here who has not yet trusted in, in uh, Jesus Christ, the Son, that they would do so this morning. We ask this all in your name, Amen. All right. Well, as usual, myself and uh, the the other leaders of the church will be available after the service. Should you want prayer or uh, or anything that you want to run by us, we'll be available here at the front. But other than that, I will give Doug back his mic and.